Welcome to Light Church. We're so glad you could join us for this weekly message. We hope this message leaves you feeling inspired and equipped to be all that you were made to be. Hey, and welcome to Light Church. Welcome to our virtual gathering. We're so honored that you would spend these few moments with us. Whoever you are, whatever your story is, I want you to know that you are amongst family. And uh, that I think it's so amazing that we can gather like this. It's been amazing to hear so many of you uh, just write in and DM us or whatever, just to say how encouraged you've been and that you've been a part of this for a while. Uh, so it's so good that we can continue to gather, even when the world is going crazy right now, uh, that we can commit to one another and spend this time together. I just want to talk quickly this morning around this idea of what crisis does to people. I don't know about you, but especially in times like this, I find myself looking back at what normal was. Maybe you can relate. Maybe actually in your own life, this is a, a state that you live in outside of crisis. This is something that you do in your life. Uh, you know, you look back at times in your life and call them the good old days. Uh, but especially in crisis, we tend to do this thing where we look back at how things were and uh, we judge everything that's coming towards us based on where we've come from. And uh, I just think this is a real interesting idea. And today I, I want to preach a message called, We Are Not Going Back There. We Are Not Going Back There. And uh, my heart for you today is that you would leave encouraged and inspired to step into the future that God has for you. Um, my heart is that you would not just leave here with more knowledge, that you would not just leave here, you know, saying, oh, that was a good morning, or oh, wasn't it fun that we could gather together, and all that stuff's good, but that you would leave completely transformed, that you would get to know Jesus, that you would get to know the man who loves you more than anything, the, the God in heaven who sent his son down to die for you, who has a plan and a purpose for your life. My heart is that you will come face to face with him today. I think today could be a day that will change your life forever. If you have a Bible, uh, would you turn to Isaiah chapter 6? Uh, if you don't have a Bible, it's all good. I'm going to read it out. Isaiah chapter 6. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two they covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say this to my people. We're going to jump into this. But I want to preach this message. We are not going back there. And my heart is that we would not spend our time looking back into our past, that we would not spend our time looking back into our life, but that we would turn and lean towards the future that God has for us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your presence, that it dwells in every single house that is watching this right now, that you are with us no matter what. 
even when we feel like we're alone, even when we face things, God, I thank you that you promise to never leave us. I pray that today is a morning that we don't just get puffed up with knowledge and intellect or we just don't get encouraged and we don't just get inspired, but God, we leave completely transformed. We just declare that you are the only one that can change us. Church can't change us. Religion can't change us. Good ideas can't change us. Only you can transform us. So I pray right now, God, that only you can do what only you can do. We love you, God. We thank you for all you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I, I was saying in crisis, it, it tends to, to change people. And one of the, the major things I've noticed about this specific crisis, and it will have happened before, is that crisis tends to breed either one of two things. Crisis either breeds commentators or responders. Let's look at this. And more, more often than not, crisis tends to breed commentators. Now, what do I mean by commentator is that we see this everywhere. And I'm sure some of you, when I give some examples, you'll be like, oh, I get who you mean. Like, we see this a lot. We see this when the, the government released like a new health guideline or something, or when a big business makes a change, or when our neighbors or family members or something begin to do something or make a change. We see these people suddenly become commentators where we begin to observe and commentate on things that are going on. Like I said, this happens with the government. All of a sudden, we see all these Facebook politicians popping up and, and people giving their opinion on things they don't really have a massive idea about, but they, they comment on it. And we see this especially in sport, don't we? If you've ever seen sport, if you've ever been to a football game or a rugby game, there are often these, these people that go to games or even sit at home on their sofa and watch these games and sit there and try and tell the manager or tell the players or, or tell the, the, the coaching staff how it should be done. You know, they're sitting there and they've never played a single minute of game time in their life. Yet they're sat there on their sofa telling the players who've trained for many years, who are at the top of their game, telling them what they should be doing. Uh, we see this so often, like maybe many of you do this, especially in a crisis where we begin to become commentators of what is going on. It reminded me, me and my friends Josh and Tom, we were in Cornwall and we had rented like a, a camper van and we were traveling around Cornwall and we were going to these different surf spots. And one day we pulled into a car park, we were getting our boards out, we were putting on our wetsuits, we were just about to go and get in the water. And into the, into the beach car park pulled this huge motorhome, like it was giant, driven by a middle-aged, probably a chino-wearing, sandal-wearing dad, who had uttered the famous words to the guy he rented it from, oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. It, this was a huge motorhome, and in the passenger seat uh, sat his, his wife, uh, I hope, and, um, and they, they drove into the, this car park, and we could tell it was rented, because like all the... the like the signs were on the side, and uh, you can rent this today. And uh, they drove in, and it was, this thing was massive. Like, it was proper big. And the guy was trying to park into the space, and if you've ever been to Cornwall, the beach car parks are real small, like real small. So they were, they were trying to get into a space, and the guy had got one end stuck in one space, and the back end of the, the vehicle stuck in another. And uh, a little bit of a crowd began to form around them, a little crowd of commentators. And it was funny because you, you have the people, and there's obviously one dude shouting, you know, full walk, and the guy who was more vocal, and he was kind of leading the little group of commentators. And we were kind of watching on, thinking, like, should we help, should we not? And, and it was funny because the, the dad driving it was, 
doing that thing where he was just, you know, smiling, nothing to see here, there's absolutely nothing wrong, and, uh, you know, why are you crowding around? I'm just parking this thing, and he was clearly way out of his depth. Mm-hmm. And then his wife in the, in the front seat doing that thing where she's just desperately trying not to make any eye contact with anyone, like hopefully no one knows what is going on. If I don't look at them, they won't see what's happening. And, and this whole thing was like just playing out in front of us. And it was so funny to watch. And finally, after a bit of time, after everyone had been telling them what to do, the guy gets out and he clearly just given up. He was stuck. And it was funny, he left the door open, and we were there like, should we do it? And I was saying, Tom, you're the best driver, you should probably go do it. And these people that were all telling this poor guy what to do, the second he got out and needed some help, no one jumped in. It was interesting to me that everyone knew what to do and it wasn't them in the driver's seat, but the second they were called upon, they were nowhere to be seen. This is quite typical of commentators, You know, they love to throw in their opinion, but not necessarily in the game. And I found this a really interesting concept to really look into this. Like, what is a commentator? Why does crisis breed commentators? And there's a couple defining characteristics about commentators. Firstly, commentators are kind of rooted in a a pessimism or rooted in a a skepticism or a cynicism. Because if you think about it, those people that were crowding around that vehicle, they were not crowding around there because they were getting ready to witness something spectacular, like something amazing. They were actually crowding around there because they were expecting to see something go wrong. They were just wanting to see what was happening. They were like curious, but they weren't optimistic like this is going to be amazing. No one has ever got out of this space. Instead, they were like, let's see how much damage this this is going to cost. Let's just see what happens. Let's see how many cars he bumps, uh, and then we'll put it on Facebook. You know, it it was kind of built on this idea that the thing wasn't going to go so well. You think about it, people that sit and they, they kind of look at the government. It's this idea that the best days were behind us and anything that we try and do to sort things out or tweak things, and I'm not saying having an opinion on things is wrong, but it's the, these people that will, that will look at a situation and compare it to how things used to be. I mean, the fact we don't live back there. And it's this idea that nothing can get better and any idea that we try and present is futile because our best days are behind us. How can things get any better? Commentators tend to be rooted in this pessimism. And the second kind of defining characteristic of a commentator is they tend to be rooted in the past or at least oriented towards the past. They seem to have a leaning towards things that were rather than things that are to be. So think about it, a football commentator will sit and comment on what's going on from the, the safety of his, of his box, uh, from the safety of, of where they, they sit, you know, looking over the pitch. They don't have to worry about having enough stamina to, to keep up in the game or whether they should shoot or pass or whatever. They get to sit in their little space and they tend to say things like, oh, compared to last game or compared to his performance across the season or compared to how she's been playing so far. It's kind of like this, this they, they're rooted in the past and assessing what's going on in the moment. So I'm not saying that they fully live in the past, but they're kind of lent towards the past. Everything that they see in real time is mirrored or compared to things that have already been. So commentators will, will look at the, the, the way things are happening and compare them to the way things have been. 
And these two defining characteristics are actually really similar to that of what we see in Isaiah here. Isaiah finds himself in this similar place, this passage that we read. This passage, Isaiah 6, is often called the commissioning of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament. A prophet was someone who, in those times, God used to speak his voice, speak his words directly to people. Uh, to, to go and send messages and maybe talk about the future or maybe talk about different things that were going to happen. But this idea that commentators were rooted uh, or oriented towards the past or ro- uh, rooted towards like a pessimism or a unsurety of what's going to happen, this is exactly where this passage picks up. So at the beginning of this passage, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now let's look at this. It might, we can skirt over this, but this is important. Uzziah was a king in the Old Testament. As far as as Old Testament kings went, he wasn't such a bad dude. In fact, he was kind of seen as an okay king. In fact, he was God-honoring. And it said that the nation prospered under King Uzziah because of his relationship with God, because he honored God. And so Isaiah being a prophet, knowing that this was what God had called him to, Isaiah was writing about different things that he'd seen and different things that that he felt were kind of going on. But under King Uzziah, Isaiah would have been comfortable because the king was God-fearing. So he wouldn't have feared for his life. He wouldn't have worried about what was going to happen to him because he was a God-fearing king. And when the prophet lived under a God-fearing king, it wasn't such a big problem. They didn't have to worry. And in those times when a king died, the nation would go into a period of unrest. It would go into a period of like uncertainty. So Isaiah would have been able to completely relate to to me and you in this situation right now where we face a future that is unknown. We face uncertain circumstances. We don't know what the government is going to release in the next couple of weeks. We don't know what society will look like. We do not know what the future is going to look like. We live in uncertain times. So this passage, to build the context, Isaiah can completely relate with what we are going through right now. So Isaiah would would have been a little bit worried. Like a commentator, he would have been looking at his time now, this period of uncertainty, and he would be thinking, what's going to happen? Is the next king going to be God-honoring? Is the nation going to prosper? Because if he's not God-honoring, then we're all, we're all screwed. Then actually, well, I'm a prophet, and if a prophet is under a king that isn't God-honoring, then uh, what are we going to do? Like, Isaiah would have been kind of a little bit wrestling with this idea of the unknown, wrestling with this idea of, but oh, wouldn't it have just been good because under King Uzziah? And Isaiah would have spent many times looking back into the past at what was normal, maybe times wishing that we could just go back to normal, heading back into times that were known, back into times that were comfortable, back into times that we were used to. Instead, he finds himself in a place of uncertainty. And then these amazing events unfold. It says Isaiah goes to the temple and he goes into the temple and he is met with this incredible picture, this incredible vision. And uh, he kind of goes through these three steps. And I just want us to pull us out, pull these out real quick. And what I want to do, I want to pull out these steps that Isaiah went through. And then I've got a couple observations that we also need to make about this that can help us in this idea of crisis and to avoid us living in a place in the past, to avoid us being commentators. To avoid us just being oriented towards what was. Instead, I want us to look at what could be and the future that God is calling us into. So Isaiah goes into the temple and he is met with this vision of God seated on a throne. 
So God is seated on a throne and he is, it says he's high and exalted. So he isn't just sat on a giant throne, but he's also seated high and above everything else. Now this is a beautiful imagery here where it's saying that God is not only in control, sovereign by being on a throne, but it's saying that he is seated high above everything else. It's this picture of glory. It's this picture of God being in control, being sovereign. It says God's robe, it kind of filled, the train of his robe filled the temple. And this is just a big, beautiful picture of his presence and his glory, his holiness. It represents him just filling the the room with a tangible sense of his glory, a tangible sense of his holiness. So can you imagine Isaiah is experiencing this kind of unrest, a little bit confused, what's going to happen, not sure what the future is going to look like. And he walks in and he sees God seated on the throne. He sees the, the train of the robe. He experiences God's presence. And then he sees these, these creatures flying around and singing this song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. Which, where have we heard this before? This is a little bit of a heavenly motif that it appears all throughout the Bible. We see it. Anytime heaven is kind of referenced, whenever we get a little bit of a peek into heaven, this is kind of this little refrain that is used uh, where these angelic beings or these heavenly beings sing this song. It's kind of like the, the anthem of heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We see it in Revelation. We see it a little bit in the birth of Jesus. Where we see this like, so can you imagine Isaiah is in this place. He's, he's confused. He doesn't know what's gonna happen. He's unsure. Then he is faced with this, huge like visual display of God's majesty, his glory, his holiness, the fact that he is sovereign, the fact that he is in control. Can you imagine being in that place? You walk in like, whoa, this is crazy. That's not what he expected to see. And then it says the second thing that he experienced is he was confronted with his own deficiency. He was met with his own brokenness. It was kind of like a revelation, a realization of the weight of his own sin, the weight of his own shortcomings. It was this kind of moment where he sees the majesty and glory of God and immediately is faced with the realization that he is a broken, unclean person. Like he's been on a roller coaster of a day so far. He one second is confused and unsure about the future. Then he sees this majestic display of God. Then all of a sudden, he suddenly realizes, I am a broken, useless, worthless person. And I'm nothing in the sight of God. And it says he, he lays on the floor, he throws himself to the floor, and he says to God, like, woe is me. Like, God, I am not... I am not worthy to be in your presence. I come from a people that are unclean. I myself have unclean lips. And I found this so, so powerful that he experiences God. And then in a second, he is confronted with his own deficiencies. He is confronted with his own shortcomings. And then the third thing that happens the, the, the third step of this process, this, this kind of uh, thing that Isaiah goes through, is that one of these creatures takes, takes like a, a, a coal, a live coal, a burning coal from the altar that would have been used to sacrifice. It was a way in the Old Testament that they would uh, worship God as they, they would sacrifice things. And they're so taken from this altar of sacrifice and it flew and touched his lips. Kind of weird, I know, but this thing flies touches his lips, and then it says to him, this has touched your lips. He would have been like, hmm, thank you. And then this thing touches his lips and it says, your guilt has been taken away and your sin has been atoned for. Your guilt has been taken away and your sin atoned for. 
Now, something that I just found real interesting when I was reading over this, that Isaiah was to be a mouthpiece for God. He was to speak the things of God. He was to declare God's voice, God's words to people. And then when he's confronted with sin, the thing that he says is unclean is his lips. And then the very thing that was the, the, they, they used to cleanse him, this burning coal touches his lips. You know, sometimes in your life, there will be things that God is calling to you in your future that, 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 are, that are unclean, that are not in a state that God can, that God can use right now. And I, I want to encourage you this morning that God wants to redeem things that are broken in your life. God wants to take things that seem like they are unclean, seem like they don't add up, seem like they just don't have what it takes, and he wants to breathe on them, he wants to touch them, and then redeem them for his purpose. That's what God wants to do. So if there's things in your life that you think like, oh, I just, I had such a heart for people, but then it got bitter, and then I don't know what's happened now. God can take that, he just needs to breathe on it and redeem it for his purpose. The imagery here is so powerful. The creature picks up a live coal from the altar of sacrifice. This is a a big arrow, a big foreshadow to the ultimate altar of sacrifice being the cross of Jesus Christ, the very center of our faith being the cross of Jesus. It was the ultimate altar of sacrifice once and for all. That God sent down Jesus to live a human life and die on a cross and three days later come out of the grave. Why? To restore yours and mine relationship back to God. So we could find a way back into relationship with who God is, who he made us to be. Creator reunited with his creation. And the, the living coal is a representation of Jesus. They, the living sacrifice. So what does this all mean? that God wants to take your brokenness and through the sacrifice of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus, through all that he did for us on the cross, when he rose again, he walked out of that grave and ascended back into heaven. Through those events 2,000 years ago, your life can be changed forever and that he can redeem things that are broken in your life to be used in your future. I don't know about you, but that encourages me. Because when I look across my life and I see my own deficiencies and I know that through the blood of Jesus, through the sacrifice of what Jesus did, my brokenness can be turned into something that can be used for purpose in my future. That encourages me. If you're feeling this morning like you're broken and you've got something going on in your life, can I just say, just let the blood of Jesus run down the thing. Just let God repurpose it, repackage it, make it new. Make it whole again. Take away your brokenness and give you wholeness so that you can live in purpose. Isaiah went from a period, a time, a season of his life of uncertainty. He's faced with the glory, majesty, sovereignty, holiness of God. He is confronted with his own deficiency. He feels the weight of his sin. And then God redeems that which was broken. And then we see this this beautiful little exchange between God and Isaiah. So this has all happened. Isaiah has been cleansed. His guilt has been taken away. Then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, God kind of stands up and, and does that thing parents do when they know the answer to the question they're about to ask. But yeah, they do it anyway. And God says, so, <clears throat> like looking around a room with only Isaiah stood there. Like the Bible doesn't say anyone else was there, but God just looking around like he's talking to a crowd. And so who, who am I going to send? Like who's going to go for me? 
And you can just imagine this picture of Isaiah like looking around like, God, there's no one else here. Like, and then Isaiah says these famous words. He says, here I am, send me. It's this picture of God being like, so who's gonna go? Who is gonna go for me? Who, is, who am I gonna send out? Send out where? Well, you see, the job of a prophet was to go out and be the voice, the mouthpiece of God, which often meant going to places that did not believe in the same God that they would have believed in, that they followed, which means going and saying things which often were really difficult to say to people that did not want to hear it, nor did they like you. So when, is, when God is saying, who am I going to send? Who is going to go do our work? Who, who are we going to go send to be our mouthpiece? When God says those words, he is saying, now who is going to put their life on the line to go and take my voice, take my message into the places I need it to go? And like here, we see this beautiful transition of Isaiah going from a commentator to a responder. And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Kind of like, coach, put me in, I'm ready. I, I'm ready to step in. I've got, I've got this. Like, this, was, this is why I'm here, I'll go. And Isaiah knew Isaiah knew what this would have meant. He would be leaving his home, his home place. He, he would be leaving all that he knew, all of his comfort, and going to an unknown, uncertain place. At the beginning of this passage, in the, king that, in, in the year that King Uzziah died, in the, the time of uncertainty, in the time that was unknown future and all of that stuff, in the kind of, oh, I wish it was normal again, we have the same guy, saying, God, send me into the unknown. Send me into the uncertain places. Send me into the places that will be uncomfortable. Send me into the danger places. Send me wherever you want me to go, I'll go. This is a, this is a big move, a big, a complete change from a commentator to a responder. Why is a responder? A responder is someone that is not oriented towards the past, but is actually leaning towards the future. It is a posture. See, a responder, just don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying a responder is the one busier with Christian things, not just filling the diary with multiple, multiple preachers they listen to or multiple church services or, you know, doing multiple good things or, or serving on every possible team or being busy with church stuff and busy with meetings and busy with stuff. That's not what I mean. That stuff is not bad. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that's not what a responder is. A responder is a posture, is a heart set, a mindset, an understanding that our best days are yet to come. It's an understanding that what is ahead of us is far greater than what lies behind us. That is what a responder is. It is someone who is willing to run into the fire. Someone when crisis hits, someone who is ready to pull up the socks, get all their gear on and run out into the unknown. It is someone who is ready to just face things. They don't know what it might look like, but secure in themselves, knowing with like this inner stability, knowing that whatever they face, our best days are ahead of us, that the, the best is yet to come. It's a posture. Isaiah made this move from commentator to responder. Oh, I don't want to step into the unknown. To God, send me into the unknown. God, I'll do it. There's a couple observations I want to make about this that can help us. Some things maybe you need to know before you make this very transition yourself, before you make the transition between commentator to responder. Now, I said it is an uncomfortable thing to be a responder. Let's quickly look at it. Firstly, when you encounter God, your life will never be the same. 
and you need to know this. When you encounter God, your life will never be the same. Isaiah is in this place. He is, things are uncertain and he goes in and he encounters God. He sees God in his glory and his majesty. He, God is revealed to him. He sees God. And something, something switches in him. Something happens in him. He sees his own deficiency. He sees what is going on. And, and all of a sudden, life just begins to shift. All of a sudden, that, that comfort zone, that, that previous place he used to live, that normal, that normality that he came from, suddenly, he can't go back there. The second that he encountered God and was faced with his own deficiency, there was only one way, and it was through. There was only one way for Isaiah to go on, and it was to follow God. Let me read a passage, 2 Peter 2, 20 to 21. This is uh, Peter. He's talking about uh, people that, that once follow God and then revert to their old uh, sinful ways and kind of fall into this entangled place. And listen to what he says. It says, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and to have turned their backs on it. Basically what he's saying is once you have encountered God, you can never go back. You can try, but you will always live live unfulfilled because you know you have tasted freedom. You know you have tasted something bigger than you. You know that you cannot revert back. Like I said, you can try, but you will be miserable you will know that there is something greater out there and you cannot squeeze yourself into places that you have already outgrown. The second, the, the second you encounter God, your life will never be the same again. And you need to know this. And maybe some of you encounter God and you're just trying to real desperately push yourself back into the places you've been like, I wish I could unknow this, but I'm afraid you can't. Have you ever been to like a restaurant and tried something absolutely amazing and you go home and you try it and it's just not the same. You just can't make it again because you've tried something so amazing. This is exactly the same. You will never be able to go back to life without the knowledge of God. You can try, but you will mess up. It will be miserable. When you meet God, when you encounter God, your life will never be the same again. Your life can never be the same again. That is not a decision. That is a fact. When God is revealed to you, you cannot go back to, you can pretend he doesn't exist. You can pretend that there's no, there's no life after death. You can pretend that we are the only ones here and there is no purpose. Or you can face it and you can say, I am uncomfortable and I don't like the way this feels. But God, I've already seen you, so I'm just going to go through. I'm just going to really awkwardly, maybe hesitantly, but I'm just going to face it. Isaiah was faced with the fact that he was deficient, that he didn't have what it takes. But he just followed God. Your life will never be the same once you encounter God. Secondly, God will prepare you for it, but he will never force you into it. I love this. So God took Isaiah through this process. He's he's revealed himself to Isaiah. Then what happens is Isaiah feels the weight of his sin. Then God cleanses him from his sin. And then God says, who will go? Who shall I send? He prepared Isaiah for it, but he was never going to force him into it. God has prepared you for something in your life through the, the mistakes you've made, through the pain you've endured, through the scars that you've got, through the, the unique journey of your life. God has prepared you for something, but he will never force you into it. 
God will never force you into your, into your purpose. He will never force you into being the person that he designed you to be. Listen to this, Hebrews 13, 20, uh, 20 to 21. It says, God will equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. What does it say? Uh, God will equip you with everything good that you will suddenly unconsciously start doing his will and not really understand what's happening. That's not what it says. Isaiah did not go through this process, suddenly come out on the other end after this cold touch in his lips and suddenly be like in another place, being like, oh, how did I end up here? God, what's going on? And God being like, you will do my will. That's not how it happened. God brought him through this process, got him ready, equipped him, and then said, who will go? Open the door. Isaiah had to respond, God will prepare you for it, but he will never force you into it. What has God prepared you for? If you look across your life right now, maybe God has prepared you for something and the door is open, but maybe it's fear. Maybe it's you are just so set on what normal was. You just haven't made that switch to being a responder. Can I encourage you? Get over that fear. God has equipped you for it but he's not going to force you into it. Can I encourage you to make that step today? Whatever it is, make that step. Once you encounter God, your life will never go back to how it was. It can never be the same. God will prepare you for it, but he will never force you into it. And finally, God does not release commentators. He releases responders. In Deuteronomy 30, 15, this just shows the nature of God. It says, I've set before you life and prosperity, death and destruction. Well, it sounds a bit crazy. It is God saying, look, I have given you a choice. I have set before you life and I've set before you death. That decision is yours. Look, I've sent my son. I've given you a way to get back to me, to live in purpose, to live in freedom, to live in wholeness. But also, I'm going to give you free will so you you can do what you want. I desperately want you to come back. I desperately want you to be in relationship with me. But you can, you can choose the other option, but that's not going to lead anywhere. In fact, it's going to lead to death and destruction. God will not force you into it. He waited for Isaiah to say those words, God, here I am, send me. God, put me in. I'm not going to hang around. I'm not going to wait any longer. God, put me in. Maybe some of you need to say those famous words. Maybe some of you need to stop hiding behind your comfort zone and hiding behind normal and hiding behind, well, we live in a crisis right now. We're living, it's a, it's a pandemic. <laughs> like, I didn't know. I didn't know it was a pandemic. Like, maybe we need to stop hiding behind some things. And I'm not, I don't want to downplay that it's a very difficult time for a lot of people, very painful for some people. You know, we're experiencing things we've never experienced before. I don't want to downplay it, but please, can we stop hiding behind this? Because God has called us into stuff and he's just waiting for us to say those words, here I am, send me. I want to make a, a plea to you today. I want to urge you. I want to, to encourage you to make a stand and say, I am not going back there. I am not living back there anymore. I'm not, I'm not going to live in that place of my past. I'm not going to live in, in that place of normal, my comfort zone. Can you make that stand? That is the call of this message. That is the call of what our faith professes. 
that our best days are ahead of us. Let's be people that lean into the future. And hey, I just, I feel really strongly right now that I need to encourage those people who maybe feel like they've been equipped through their brokenness. And they've just gotten to that place where they've gone through that, you know, that, that process that Isaiah went through. And they're in that stage where they just really, really feel the weight of their life. They really feel the heaviness of their brokenness, the heaviness of their deficiency. Can I just encourage you right now that there is no life outside of Jesus, that there is no one who can bring you fulfillment. There is no one who can restore that part of you that was robbed by sin. There is no one who can give you life other than Jesus. And he desperately wants to know you. He desperately wants to cleanse you this morning, to clean you, to lift that burden of sin off your shoulders, to lift that brokenness off your shoulders, to lift the shame and the guilt. Why? Because when he was hanging on that cross, he said these words, it is finished. And he wasn't joking. He wasn't pretending. He went through all of this so that you could know the Father, so that you could live exactly how we were created and designed to live. Not people who would live in the past and live in that place back there. But he died on that cross to give us what? A life to give us hope, to give us future. Let us be people that in the light of all that Jesus did, his, his birth, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, in the light of all of that, the life and death of Jesus, let us be people that say, I am not going back there. I'm tired of living in that place. I'm sick of always comparing everything I face to back there. And let us be people that say, I am not going back there. Our best days are ahead of us. Why? Because Jesus is calling us into something. Maybe you've never met Jesus and you want to experience the forgiveness of your sin, the releasing of your burden, the lifting of the heaviness, a restoring back into the person that you are made to be. You just need to acknowledge what Jesus did for you and say, Jesus, I give you my life. All of it, all the brokenness, all the sin, all the hurt, all the pain, I give it to you. And the crazy thing is he'll take it and he will restore you. No one else can offer this. There's no self-help books, no diets, no nothing that can offer life outside of Jesus. Jesus, I give you my life. Maybe you listen to this message today and you've known deep inside you that you've been sat as a commentator for far too long and today is the day you're gonna make that transition. I wanna champion you. I wanna say that heaven is calling you forward. We are not going back there. As a church, we are not going back there. Normal, we don't even know what that is anymore. We are not going back there. Our services will never be the same. Our church will never be the same. We will never be the same. We are not going back there. Let's pray. Father God, I wanna thank you for this morning. Thank you for who you are. I wanna thank you for your just unrelenting grace that even though we screw up, we mess up. I wanna thank you, God, that you just never stop chasing us down. I wanna thank you for those people that responded to you for the first time that acknowledged what you did on the cross was final that it was enough, that it could restore them back. I pray for those people that, that really wanna give you their life right now. I pray that you would flood them with your grace, reveal yourself to them, reveal their brokenness to them, and then lift it off their shoulders. Thank you, God, you are a God that redeems. And for all those people that make that bold step today to move from being a commentator to a responder, 
God, I pray give them courage, give them vision, give them hope, give them a fire inside of them that shows them that the best days are ahead of us. God, let us be people that are oriented towards the future, towards all that you are calling us into. We love you, God. We thank you for our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I started that prayer looking at the camera when I opened my eyes, I was sideways. That was funny. Thank you for spending these, these moments with us this morning. It's been so encouraging for us every week to spend this time together. Uh, we love you. We're praying for you. And can I just encourage you, stop living in the places that you've already outgrown. And let us run into the things that God has called us to. Let us be a people that say we are not going back there. We love you guys, and uh, we will see you next week. You've been listening to a weekly message from Light Church. If you would like any more information, you can find us online or on social media. Thanks for listening.